you know, we had uh, we had lots of people knocking on our door wanting to come and work in our team because everybody was having fun, Ollie. Yeah. And that's, that's the key. You know, people wanted to be there. And uh, to get back to your earlier question, how did I manage it? It was pretty simple because people were just desperate to get there. They, they loved the chase and the kill and, you know, getting that trade done and opening this new market and getting that new supplier on board and that new customer. And, you know, it was exciting stuff. This episode of the Humans of Agriculture podcast was recorded on Gadigal People's Country of the Eora Nation, and I'd like to extend my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And I'd like to extend those respects to the traditional owners of the country wherever you may be listening to the podcast. Well, LAWD came on early last year to support the Humans of Agriculture podcast, and we are so thankful for their support. LAWD are the specialists in agribusiness valuations and transactions, and they've certainly been keeping busy over the last 12 months with everything that's happening in the Australian rural property market. Jump over to their website, lawd.com.au, to check out their listings. G'day and welcome back to another episode of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and as always, Thank you so much for jumping on and giving us a listen. Our next guest is someone who I had the pleasure of meeting through the Xander McDonald Award. For more than 40 years, Richard Rains has been a leader in the Australian livestock sector. His passion and enthusiasm for supporting young people in agriculture is remarkable, and I feel pretty lucky to have Richard in my corner. As a kid and through high school, Richard thought he was heading back to the family farm. But with a bit of encouragement from his dad, he set about working his way into Australia's red meat sector. His impressive rap sheet over his 40-year career includes executing Australia's first beef trade with Korea, as well as being the trailblazer that got Australian beef into McDonald's in North America. Not only does Richard have an absolutely incredible story, I think his soothing tones will keep you company during this chat. As we talk about as part of this, the Xander McDonald Award is coming up and we Got our eyes firmly set on New Zealand for their announcement later this week. But I hope you enjoy the chat. And if you want to know any more about Richard or his story or the Xander McDonald Award, jump over to their website or check out the show notes. I think, um, well, one thing which has really stood out for me, Richard, and getting to know you over the last 12 months is just how passionate you are about the ag industry. And you've been in it for... Nearly 40 years. So. All, all my life. Well, I was in it for 40 years, Ollie, and I've been out of it now for eight or something or out of an executive role in the industry, still uh, s- still enjoying my seat in the grandstand, you might say, which I love. Keeping yourself very busy. Yeah, well, yeah, Ollie, I've had some good chapters in my life, but uh, I certainly believe this one's, this one's the best one as far as I'm concerned. But... Um, uh, retirement's a nice place to be. A lot of people get nervous about retirement, but I've grabbed it with both hands and uh, and love every little bit of it. Um, you mightn't get the income in retirement. You certainly don't get holidays, but uh, uh, the rest of it is pretty good. I love the freedom. I need to be able to uh, uh, do what I want when I want. Uh, it's uh, it's a wonderful place to be. Do you wish you'd done it sooner? or No, no, not at all. I absolutely loved my career. Uh, Ali, that's... Um, uh, I was pretty passionate about that and uh, 
enjoyed every minute of it. But uh, no, the time was right. The opportunity came along for me to uh, sell my business to my work colleagues. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, uh, I grabbed that with both hands. And um, uh, so I exited stage left and... Uh, uh, Ollie, the older I get, the smaller my revision mirror gets, and uh, I don't regret that decision one little bit. There you go. I do want to jump back before we get too deep into your career and work and, and yeah. all of that to take take it back to the central west of New South Wales, which <laughs> little town of Dunedoo where That's you grew it. up. That's it. Maybe where the love of golf started. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about yeah your childhood and. and the area that you grew up in called home. Yeah, um, a lovely part of the world, Ollie. It was um, uh, a mixed farm, a, a few cattle, few sheep, a little bit of grain, but um, uh, extraordinary life that the generation was that our parents lived. You know, uh, um, our parents saw horse and sulky. Um, dad, um, dad started with a with a small block of land that was completely timbered. Uh, in those days, there were no bulldozers, no chainsaws, no poisons. So it was a matter of ringbarking those trees, uh, waiting for them to die, and uh, uh, and all that goes with getting arable land around that. And uh, uh, you know, started with nothing else in his life, um, and uh, ended up finding a wife and having four kids. Uh, I was. Uh, uh, I was the mistake. I came along a fair bit uh, later, Ollie, so uh, my three siblings uh, a lot older than me. Uh, and, uh, you know, Dad um, Dad left school in fifth class, not fifth year, fifth class, to go back home uh, because of uh, tough times, not because of the war, but because of tough times. And uh, so Dad didn't have a lot of education, but he appreciated the... Uh, the worth of education, and so uh, he made sure that we four kids all uh, all got a good um, uh, Sydney boarding school education, and uh, I'll be forever grateful for Dad for that. And uh, you know, he he and Mum just had a a, a tough life. Uh, I'm not saying they didn't enjoy it. You know, they loved the bush. It was all they knew. And um, yeah, we grew up. Uh, uh, just outside Dunedoo, a little village by the name of Birrawar, which is, uh, you blink your eye now and you'd miss it, Ollie, but uh, I went to primary school there. Um, uh, Thirteen of us in the school, if memory serves me correctly, it doesn't exist. In, the building is still there, but it's obviously not a school. So one teacher school, 13 kids, two of us in sixth class. Um, if my memory serves me correctly, Ollie, I believe I was the Ducks in, uh, in my final year. The other fella came last. There were just two of us. <laughs> so to go from a school of 13 to come to Sydney to a school of about 1,200 uh, knocked my socks off and uh, yeah. I struggled with that for a long time. Really didn't uh, 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 get into gear till my last couple of years at school. But nonetheless, I don't have any great memories of uh, of senior school, but I'm certainly very grateful for the opportunities that it's given me and very grateful for my parents for uh, for giving me that opportunity to be able to do that, Ollie, recognising the importance of it, which I believe it was. Having said that, lots of people do extremely well from having gone to state schools. I wouldn't put state schools down for one minute. That's uh, uh, I, I wouldn't do that at all, but I'm very grateful of the opportunities that I had. Sadly, um, I lost Dad when he was only 64, I was only 22, um, uh, and uh, he was a tough old bugger. We didn't necessarily have the greatest of relationships. He was uh, um, quite sick for you know, the last 10 years, so 
Um, most of my memory of my father is when he was, <coughs> you know, if, if only there were stents or bypasses available today, Ollie, uh, Dad, uh, or, 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 you know, when Dad was ill, I'm sure he would have lived a whole lot longer. But uh, um, and then uh, uh, Mum did a Don Bradman. She almost got to 100. She got to 99 oh. and, uh, and ran out of puff only uh, five years ago. But um, no, they were uh, they battled on and uh, did well. But um, I'm, I'm I'm very fortunate with my family. They mean the world to me, Ollie. Oh, that's good. Absolutely. Mm. Mm. Leaving school, so you you'd gone to Sydney. Was going back to the farm ever on the cards, or was it pretty always clear? on the cards? That was all I was going to do, Ollie. I didn't ever 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 consider doing anything else. My two older brothers had gone back on the farm. My sister hadn't, but. Uh, Two older brothers had gone back on the farm. One was at uh, Ag College at Tokal when I left uh, school, so I thought perfect opportunity, room for me. Yep. Rang home the day uh, I finished my HSC and said, uh, all done, Dad, I'm on my way home. And uh, he said, woo, 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 not so soon, not so <laughs> soon. Things aren't, things aren't so good. Uh, and, and one piece of advice my father gave me, Ollie, that I will never forget uh, is, uh, look, uh, if... If you decide to come home, which you're very welcome to do, but we will have to split that meagre income that we're getting, we'll have to split that income another way, and that means that none of us all do too well. He said, why don't you stay in Sydney and give it a go, see what happens. If it works, great. If it doesn't, as I say, you can always come home. To, to know that there was that safety blanket there for me, Ollie, that you know I could stay in Sydney and, and give it a crack, and if it worked, great. If it didn't... Well, I knew there was a plan B, otherwise it might What you really been. wanted to do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. But, you know, as a kid, I'd always said, there's no way I'm going to sit behind a desk, you know. I don't want an office job, I, you know, I want to be in the bush outdoors. Well, it's easy to say that, but until you sit at a desk and give it a go and see what happens, I ended up loving it, Ollie. It was absolutely fantastic. I, you know, I wouldn't have chosen anything else, but that was... Uh, you know, I just happened upon the meat industry and uh, fell in love with it. And uh, thankfully, it was very kind to me. And uh, uh, and and so it goes. It's wonderful to have that love of the bush and to be able to go back to the bush whenever I want to to visit friends. We've got you know friends all over the country, thankfully. And uh, it's wonderful to be able to call in and see them and enjoy it. But uh, uh, I've got to say, these days, um, I, I I enjoy the jungle. Uh, you know, it's. Uh, where our kids were born, where our home is, and all those things, and uh, Sydney is uh, Sydney's good by me. I uh, I enjoy all that's got. Uh, I love touching the bush, but um, no, I enjoy living in Sydney, Ollie. Did you ever, in those early years of your career, think of upping and outing, or, or was no, no, it never crossed my mind. Yeah, never well. crossed my mind because um, it stayed pretty tough in the bush for a time, Ollie. And uh, you know, as time went on, I got used to Sydney and. Um, uh, I didn't enjoy it as much uh, initially, but it uh, grew on me over time. And uh, um, yeah, uh, uh, no, it didn't ever cross my mind to go back to the bush. And, and what kind of worker were you in the workplace? Were you looking for praise? Were you just flat out like a, a bull at a gate in this whole new world? Yeah, um, yeah it's interesting, Ollie. When so when Dad said that to me, you know, it hit me like a ton of bricks that I couldn't go back home because that's all I'd ever dreamt of. So. Um, in those days, uh, I went through the newspaper and the classifieds and, uh, you know, you look for a job. And uh, so I applied for a few and the only one that gave me a response was a company by the name of Castrol, or oil company, Castrol Oil Company. 
um, at uh, Guildford in Western Sydney. So I applied there and uh, uh, <laughs> uh, if memory serves me correctly again, Ollie, I think I turned up in a purple suit or something, a crimson <laughs> suit that I'd borrowed off a mate. And uh, I, had, I was so wet behind the ears, Ollie, I didn't know what I was doing. And um, anyway... Apparently there were over a hundred applicants, and uh, somehow I, I I jagged the job. And the fellow who it was a it was a trainee marketing cadetship, and uh, the fellow that employed me obviously felt sorry for me because he said, "Now listen, you've come down from the bush on the train, which I did." And he said, where are you going to live? And I said, oh, good, I haven't even thought of that. I said, I haven't got a clue. He said, well, why don't you come and bunk with us, you know, my family and I, uh, until we get you sorted. So I did. So it was just amazing to think that I went and lived with the boss and his family for a few weeks and then he put me in a flat in Cabramatta with a mate of his and... Uh, we went from there. I didn't have any more interest in oil than flying to the moon, Ollie, so I stayed there for 18 months, I think, but it didn't tick my boxes. But uh, it was a great experience, and uh, you've got to make the most out of wherever you are. Absolutely. We, it, it was in your early days at Dalgetty where you were involved in one of the first, or if not the first, trade of, of beef to Korea. Yeah, that's exactly right. So uh, when, I, when I determined that oil uh, wasn't for me, uh, we had a phone book, called the Yellow Pages in those days, Ollie. I remember that. We, we, do I'm, you? I'm not that old. You're not that, not old. that young, so, sorry. So <laughs> I, went, I went through that and, uh, and wrote to every agriculture. I, I still had the bush in my blood. I, you know, I was still wanted to be involved with agriculture. So I wrote to all the different ag companies I could find there that were in Sydney. Uh, the only one that gave me a response was Dalgetty. Uh, and so, um, interestingly, they... Uh, Dalgetty were a, a London-based major trading company, uh, ag company, if you like, stock and station agents. Uh, so um, uh, they had um, uh, an export department, one fellow doing sheepskins and hides, one fellow doing grain, one fellow doing meat, and, uh, and an overall export manager. But if one of those guys was sick, or holidays or travel, there was no one to carry on the, the business whilst they were out of the chair. So... They, um, they put me through an 18-month traineeship. Ollie, I was, uh, started off grading sheepskins down at Botany, which meant you know hanging wet maggoty skins up on racks and it wasn't very pleasant. But anyway, that's what you had to do to get to where you wanted to get to. Uh, I spent time in grain sheds in Queensland and Narrabri, New South Wales. I spent time in abattoirs at Casino and, uh, uh, and the Homebush learning the trade and uh, then came back into the office I said, right, here I am, who's busy? And the fellow in the Skins, uh, skins uh, desk said, yes, I'm busy. So I spent a couple of days there, got him up to date. He said, that's great. I said, right, who's busy now? And the bloke in the meat department said, yes, I need help. Well, Lolly, uh, I, I sat on that meat desk. I didn't ever leave the meat desk. I didn't ever spend a day on grain. I didn't <laughs> ever go back to the Skins desk. But uh, uh, meat, yes, and... Um, uh, it was it was really enjoyable for me. I could see that was uh, that was a place a, a, a job that I could really get my teeth into. And whilst there, uh, as you mentioned, Ollie, I sold the first meat to Korea that they ever imported. The details of all that are a little bit hazy, but I do remember it was 500 ton of quarter beef that uh, I bought out of the um, a fellow by the name of Ron Tange at the Newcastle Abattoir. Um, and uh, it was just the most amazing experience to be able to do that. It was uh, sold it to the Korean government. The, the, the Korean government ran tenders and bought all the meat for Korea for quite a few years, and uh, 
So I maintained a very, very, very close involvement uh, with Korea, which uh, soon became Australia's third largest market and uh, export market, and it'd still be up there somewhere today. It's not, it's not bone in frozen quarter beef anymore, thankfully, but uh, it became a very, very, very substantial market. Would, was that kind of the, the pinnacle of your time at at Dalgetty, and was it time to then start to look yeah. at the next challenge? Well, yeah, it was, Ollie. Sadly, um, you know, Dalgetty was a big company, and um, uh, the management wouldn't have known me from Adam. I was a number on a payroll slip. You had to Bundy on and Bundy off, and uh, that wasn't for me, Ollie. Uh, as you mentioned before, it was I the sort of person that needed a bit of praise? Well, yes, I was, but I also needed a kick in the bum if I did something wrong, and that just didn't happen at Dalgetty. So... Um, an English-based meat trading company by the name of Sanger had noticed what I'd done in uh, in Korea, and uh, they um, headhunted me. I think is the is the right term. So uh, uh, they um, uh, they gave me a job there. And uh, the following year, uh, Ollie, I went to Korea. I flew to Korea twelve times. I was up there once a month for every tender, uh, which was quite a thing in in those days for. Uh, uh, I think I was 20 when I sold that first meat to Korea. I was 22 when I had uh, 12 trips to Korea. You, you couldn't fly directly Australia to Korea. You had to have an overnight in Hong Kong each way. And uh, it was quite a process, but uh, but very substantial business and a steep but uh, but wonderful learning curve for me. I uh, I learned a lot out of those Korean days. Yeah. Mm. And then that wasn't the end of the jet setting yet. I I've had a bit of a research here. You, oh. you, you headed over to London for a bit of a, not quite a gap year, but it might might be look like that way to yeah. some. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, still with the same organisation. So Sanger's head office was in London and uh, the chairman uh, had very kindly said to me, he said, listen, you know, we'd like to start a bit of a program with you. I think the company had 12 international offices at that stage. He said, why don't you come and have a year in London and then you can have a year in each of the offices over time and see where it all goes. And I said, well, that sounds pretty attractive to a a young kid from the bush. So uh, off I went to London, arrived there just at the beginning of winter, which was, uh, you know, snow on the roads and all those sort of things. First time I'd ever seen snow. So uh, that was a bit of a shock to the system. But uh, I loved it, uh, being in head office. And it was, you know, when when I left here, I thought the Australian meat trade was pretty big time. You know, I sort of thought the world revolved around us, Ollie. But you get over there and see all the different proteins and the volumes that are produced across Europe and the world. Uh, and it uh, really put me back in my box, you know. I'd, uh, uh, Australia wasn't uh, king of the kids anymore. But uh, I loved my time there. After six months, uh, uh, the chairman said, listen, this is working really well. You better stay for a couple of years, you know, add another year. And I said, love to. And then a few months later, uh, business took a bit of a turn for the worse. Not uh, not for anything that I'd done, Ollie. But uh, <laughs> uh, he said, look, I don't know that we're going to, su- going to survive uh, what's happening? He said, "I think you better get back home, and uh, so that you're out of any of the uh, any of the mess." So I did my twelve months in London, and uh, and came back to Australia, and then the middle of nineteen eighty. Sadly, uh, uh, Sanger uh, didn't survive. Went into administration, and uh, uh, the fellow who was running the Australian office at that time, John Cooper, uh, bought this, this, the Australian office back from the liquidators, and. Uh, and kept the business rolling, so uh, yes. But that was uh, that was the gap year in London, uh, Ollie, and it was just a wonderful experience for me. Hey, it's Nick here, sheep farmer and Rabobank Regional Client Council member. I'm passionate about supporting our local community 
so we can improve community well-being and build strong local economies. My job as a client council member is to help secure funding for regional grassroots initiatives, those that support education in ag, rural health, sustainability, and help bridge the country-city divide. We've helped organisations like Boys to the Bush, funded school field days like Ag Vision, and held succession planning workshops, just to name a few. If you have an idea to make a difference to regional Australia, go to our website at www.rabobank.com.au and nominate via our community fund. We'd love to hear from you. And it sounds like a little bit more prepared than when you headed out to Cabramatta. <laughs> <laughs> Completely. That, well, somewhat, somewhat, somewhat more prepared. But um, uh, I knew then that that was the industry for me and the career that I was on, so I was really able to you know, get stuck in and, uh, and, and try and make my mark. Was there something about John Cooper that really pulled you into the business and yeah, yeah saw you as part of it? Yeah, absolutely, uh, Ollie. He was... Uh, uh, he's a father figure to me, you know, having lost uh, my father when I was 22, I was probably looking for a, a mentor, we didn't know, didn't have the word in those days, a mentor, but uh, he was he was very much a father figure to me, he was a wonderful man, tough as boots, and uh, he didn't mind giving me a kick in the bum when I did something wrong, which <laughs> was too all too frequent, unfortunately, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> But uh, anyways, he, he's still a, a dear, dear friend of mine today. We speak every other week and uh, I see a lot of him when, when COVID allows. But uh, uh, Ollie, um, uh, uh, he gave me opportunities, you know. He opened doors for me and, uh, I, you know, I would, I would run through them. I wouldn't walk through them. And uh, I think he appreciated my enthusiasm and my... Uh, you know my hunger to uh, to get somewhere, and uh, so uh, he really gave me opportunities, um, and uh, and I grabbed them with both hands and ran with them, and it was just just wonderful. Because there wouldn't be many twenty six year olds that get the chance to buy into a what was a global business at that stage. Absolutely, like absolutely, not many at all, Ollie, and uh, uh, that that came as a great surprise to me, but. Uh, Again, how can you say no to an opportunity like that? So uh, uh, it took me a while to uh, complete that. I uh, ended up with the majority of the shares in the business in 2000. Uh, John retired. Um, I had a colleague by the name of Graham Greenhaug who I ended up selling uh, my equity to. Uh, but uh, no, that was, uh, that was quite a ride, Ollie, to, uh, uh, because, you know, it became a, a reasonably... A substantial business in the meat export industry in Australia. Uh, I, I, I took that business from, uh, you know, a revenue of fifty million dollars to five hundred million dollars. So, uh, it uh, it was significant. Yeah, absolutely. I shouldn't say I took it. The, the, the team and I, the team that I had created. I was just one of a one of a good crew, Ollie. Um, but uh, it was a wonderful ride in an amazing business. Oh, you've done a very good tangent there. You, not your first time on radio. We might come back to that later <laughs> as well. That your approach to leadership and or in management in that case too. What what was your approach? And and I guess yeah. Now looking back on your career, what how would you see that people describe you as a leader in the in the workplace? Ollie, uh, I'd I'd like to think that I'm a people person. I love people. I love people, and uh, I think if you're in marketing like I was, selling meat around the world, uh, you know, you've got to want to get on with people and uh, 
uh, and create relationships. If I can say one thing that I think we managed to do was create wonderful relationships, and I can't put enough importance on that. Uh, but uh, so as much as I'd like to think I'm a people person, I hated managing people. I, I didn't. I just dreaded the day when I might have to sack somebody, which thankfully I very rarely had to do. Uh, more through good luck than than anything else, Ollie. But uh, we had a very flat uh, management approach in the business, and uh, you know, lots of people self-manage. So if their if their teammate wasn't uh, wasn't doing their thing, well, they wouldn't come and tittle tat to me. You know, they'd they'd say to their mate, "Listen, pull your bloody socks up." You know, there's there's things to be done here, and uh, and that that worked really well in my style, Ollie. Um, we had. Uh, you know, we had a, a very much an open office. We had uh, a, an accounts team that were in their own area because we made a fair bit of noise and they always said they couldn't uh, hear themselves think. But uh, we had a big long trading desk with bu- uh, desks all butted up against each other and I sat right in the middle of that, as did Graham. Graham and I sat opposite each other. We sat right in the middle of that trading desk with the whole idea being, Ollie, that everybody around that desk... Uh, knew exactly what was going on in the world meat trade all the time. If the dollar moved, if there was a disease somewhere, if there was, you know, it, it didn't matter what it was the it was the cry out system, yep. and uh, everybody had one ear on their phone and another ear on what was happening around the trading desk, and uh, it just seemed to work. It really did. I didn't have an office of my own, neither did Graham. Um, we just uh, we just got on with it. Graham and I would have a board meeting uh, two or three days a week. We'd go and have a sandwich and a coffee together uh, for lunch, <laughs> and uh, nut out uh, you know where we thought there might have, might have been a problem or an opportunity, uh, and that was important. But um, yeah, it was just a, just a wonderful, wonderful business. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I think you had a really interesting approach to hiring people. It wasn't ever headhunting people into different roles. It was always or you grew people from within, didn't you? And, yeah, and absolutely. Gave them- uh, either from within or uh, uh, a lot of our meat traders, if I can call them that, Ollie, uh, I would get them straight out of university. Um, initially, we uh, poached a couple of people from competing companies, but that was a disaster. Uh, I realised the people only let them go if they didn't really want them. Um, so we would get uh, uni graduates um, and... Uh, so I would write to the university in those days and say, would you mind putting this letter up on a, on a poster board somewhere? And uh, I would say, you know, we're a meat uh, marketing company, export trading company, and, uh, you know, we're looking for a, a, a bright young lad who might, or, you know, boy or girl, didn't matter, who uh, um, uh, might like to give it a go. And uh, so we'd get our applicants, we'd interview them, and, uh, Ollie, there was no... Uh, I, I wish I could tell you that there was a secret as to how we... Uh, interviewed or employed these people. Uh, we didn't, but we did not have one failure. We did not have one of those graduates leave us. So they'd come on board. I'd give them a further 18 months traineeship. I'd say now, 12 to 18 months anyway. I'd say, I know you've had enough of education. You're ready to get your teeth into it, but let me tell you, you haven't. You've got to know the industry. And uh, uh, if you don't do this now, you will never do it. So, you know, I would put them in maybe my accounts department so they could understand what a letter of credit and a site draft and a foreign currency was and all those things for a few months. And then I'd put them in an abattoir, maybe for a week or two. 
Uh, they wouldn't be able to get their hands too dirty because they wouldn't be able to hold a knife. Uh, but, uh, you know, they could, they could get the gist of what happens in a beef abattoir. Then I'd bring them back in, put them in my logistics department so they understood shipping and containers and all the... Or, you know everything, and then I might put them in a, in a lamb abattoir or an offal abattoir or whatever the, uh, in the offal department of, a, of an abattoir, um, and then you know eventually bring them back onto the trading desk. And the and the thing that was really key, Ollie, I wouldn't sit them in the corner and say, right now you've got to trade, you know, beef offals to Japan. Uh, I would just let them sit there and be a part of it all for a time and eventually they would come to me. One fellow specifically, Brett Stockings, came to me and said, Richard, I, uh, look, I've got a bit of a thing about goats and I, uh, Sanger doesn't seem to be trading any goat meat. There's a big market out there for goats. Would you mind if I, you know, if I look after goats? Uh, which I did and he developed a terrific trade. Another fellow, Alistair Ferguson, came straight to us out of Orange Ag College and he came to us and he said in the interview, if I get this job, I would love to be able to start an organic meat business. I said, organic, can you spell that for me? You know, it was something I knew nothing about. Well, uh, you know, he, uh, he came on board the team, went through the same traineeship, went to the abattoirs and worked in all the different departments in the office and then started this organic um, uh, processing. Uh, and uh, um, today that business that he created is called Arcadian Natural and Organic Meat Company. Uh, I'm told it'd be the biggest organic meat company in the world. Uh, it's just an amazing enterprise. He just grabbed it and loved it and ran with it. We were able to give him all the support around that. But, um, you know, and then other fellows in the office see what's happened with the goats and see what's happened with the organic. And, and that's just the way we handled our... Um, the new ones coming on board the team and uh, it just created an unbelievable team because people developed their own trade and it was their baby you know so they wanted to make sure that it grew and it was uh, you know I didn't ever go to any marketing school Ollie I didn't go to university I didn't do any any tech courses I just learned it on the run and uh, it just sort of evolved and developed but uh, it was just the most wonderful powerful recipe Absolutely. Yeah. In, in, with the benefit of hindsight and that, I, I, yeah, building ventures, I'll say, or bi building businesses within businesses. And yeah. nowadays you sit on the other side where you've seen through the Xander Award a number yes. of startups yes. created. Yes. What do you think it was about kind of empowering your employees to build that business within Sanger as opposed to running off and trying to do it themselves? Was there something that they knew they nearly needed you in their corner for? Yeah, Ollie, uh, to do what we were doing, you needed a, bucket, a truckload of money. Yep. Um, and uh, fortunately, we were very well financed by our bankers, and I'd like to touch on that in a sec, if I may. But um, uh, So uh, from a financial perspective, nearly impossible to somebody, for somebody to start up uh, on their own uh, and, uh, and have the funding to do what you need to do. So that was the first thing. But, you know, we had... Uh, we had lots of people knocking on our door wanting to come and work in our team because everybody was having fun, Ollie. Yeah. And that's, that's the key. You know, people wanted to be there. And uh, to get back to your earlier question, how did I manage it? It was pretty simple because people were just desperate to get there. They, they loved the chase and the kill and, you know, getting that trade done and opening this new market and getting that new supplier on board and that new customer. And, you know, it was exciting stuff. Yeah. Really exciting stuff. 
So just let me touch on on the finance. Yeah. So, so a few of the things that I think were key to our business's success were we were honest, genuine. We didn't ever try and trick anybody, cheat anybody. If we said we will pay you tomorrow, we will pay. You know, we paid you tomorrow. We were the. I'd like to think we were some of the quickest payers in the industry, and I think that was probably our best advertising, uh, because when people sold us, they knew they would get paid on time every time, and that was important to them. The reason we were able to do that, Ollie, was that we had wonderful bankers. We had three banks. Um, uh, one bank had half our business. The other two shared the other half of our business, and uh, that was just wonderful. But I absolutely went out of my way to make sure that our bankers were as comfortable as they possibly could be. I knew where every dollar was in my business, Ollie, and I made sure that the banks knew where every dollar was in my business. If I had a, a sniff of a potential problem or a bad debt, I would let my bank know. You know, Billy Bloggs is, is two days over date. I believe he'll be right, but um, I just want to make sure that you're aware that there's a potential problem here. Well, two days later, I get the money in and um, and let the bank know that everything was all right. So they were comfortable. And uh, I think in hindsight, Ollie, uh, our bankers gave us e extraordinary uh, facilities to be able to do what we wanted to do. None of my team ever had to ask me if they had any volume restrictions on what they were allowed to buy and sell. That was never a case. Whatever they could do, they did, and we paid for it. It was just such a position of privilege, and I didn't take it for granted for one minute, Ollie, uh, but um, I think apart from, second to having an unbelievable team of people around me, I think the fact that we were so well banked, just, you know, as a trading business, Ollie, it's about turning money over and getting a little bit of, little bit of dust on that dollar every time it turns over, and uh, the more often you can turn it over, the better. Um, I was as hard as nails on making sure that we got paid on time, I'd be right on my customer's hammer the day that money was due. I was I was on them. And uh, if they didn't like it, if they wanted a bellyache, well, that was all right. Go and buy your meat somewhere else. I don't need you. Uh, and uh, those who uh, were good customers respected the fact that we were across our business and we knew when the money was due. So if a customer was going to delay payment to someone, they'd delay somebody else, not delay payment to us. And uh, it was, uh, it was pretty powerful. The money we could make at the end of the day, Ollie, was on the number of times we could turn that, turn that money over. And uh, that's exactly what we did. Wow. Yeah. And, and everyone knew where they fitted in that cog and it was Absolutely. just a well-oiled machine. Absolutely. But most importantly, we had to know, I had to know where every dollar was uh, in our account, what our foreign exchange exposure was, all those sort of things. The first thing a person, a trader had to do when they sold, bought or sold a pound of meat, Ollie, the next call had to be the bank to hedge that currency. Um, I said, as I always said, you've done the trade in the first place because there was a margin in it. Don't risk it by by thinking you know more about what the currency is going to do than the next bike. Hedge it. Hedge yeah. that currency. And it worked. I want to ask, well, there's a, a couple of things. The first thing that comes to mind is, did, did it seem, well, there was so much happening. Did you, was work completely engulfing for your life or do you manage yeah. to have balance and actually, yeah, step aside? Um, good question, Ollie. Yes, it was engulfing, but um, uh, I think... Uh, my darling wife says that I had 
quite a unique ability to be able to leave my work in the office and not bring it home. I could, I could walk in the door and not, I wasn't on the phone, you know, all night to customers. I would work and home lives were very separate. I'd always start particularly early and but try and be home before, you know, for dinner with the kids and uh, before they went to bed and all those sort of things. And uh, I made a policy of that. We were very, very lucky that uh, uh, Penn was able to be a, a full-time mum Mm-hmm. Uh, so she was always there, but um, uh, uh, I hear lots of people say they regret that they didn't spend more time with their kids. Of course, I'd love to have been there 24 hours a day, Ollie, but uh, 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 life doesn't work like that. And I would like to think that I went pretty close to getting the balance right. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the, the other question I've got off of that is that there was lots of highs in your 40-year career. Yeah. Well. Was there some lows? Was there kind of pivotal setbacks which really shaped you as the optimist that you are now? Um, yes, Ollie. Uh, you know, every week there were there were knocks when uh, people let you down that, uh, that that you thought you trusted and they didn't uh, quite come up with the goods. Be that a supplier or a customer or you know somebody else along the along the supply chain that always happened. But that's business. And uh, I didn't ever hold a grudge. You just uh, get on with life. Um, but uh, yeah, big events. Uh, you know, when um, you know Japan closed the door on, um, on on importing Australian meat for a period of time. You know that hurt. That really hurt. Uh, um, you know, we did a lot of business with Russia, and uh, uh, they were pretty tricky with their money and uh, and the games that they played. And uh, you know that hurt from time to time. But the, but the highs, Ollie, there's no doubt the highs outweighed the lows. And I think, um, you know, the low, if you didn't have any lows, well, you probably wouldn't appreciate the highs. So yeah. uh, you've just got to try and avoid the lows as best you can. And, um, you know, that's a bit, a bit of management in that as well, so, you know, understanding what a pothole looks like and uh, being able to avoid it. Absolutely. And I think, um, or it's interesting, as a people person, the lows that you focused on there have all been around people as well, which I guess yeah. maybe that's naturally where they fall back to or if it's just... The ones that stand probably, out. Probably the people that I blamed, Ollie. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. But uh, anyways, no, it was uh, it was often people. Often yep. people who let you down. I, I want to talk and take a bit, uh, digress slightly to talk about giving back. And one thing that you mentioned before we jumped on and why you looked, you actually were setting up the microphone, Richard. You made me look like a novice. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a little bit of practice, yeah. Ollie, just a bit. <laughs> talk me through your time on radio and how you fit that into your career as well and and why yeah well that was an opportunity um uh i I joined a community radio station ollie by the name of two rph Uh, rph stands for radio for the print handicapped uh and so uh, a friend of mine was there and uh, suggested that i might like to uh, uh, partake so i'd just do that one day a week ollie i'd be there at five o'clock uh be on air at six till eight and the idea was that you read certain sections of the newspaper uh, over the radio and uh, people who uh, are vision impaired uh, were not able to read so they were able to listen to the newspaper. And uh, I got a lot out of that. That was a lot of fun. I was still at the office by half past eight so uh, I was a bit later than I I, might have uh, normally been to the office. But uh, um, look, it's uh, it's one thing to... uh, uh, to be charitable with your checkbook, Ollie, it's another thing to give with your time. And uh, 
uh, time's a pretty precious and important thing. And uh, I wasn't treading on anybody's toes. You know, I wasn't missing out on the family that one day a week, leaving home at, uh, at, at some ungodly hour in the morning. But uh, it was great experience. Uh, I enjoyed it. And uh, it was just a nice thing to be able to do. And uh, that was at the latter part of my career, Ollie. I just did that for a couple of years and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Absolutely. And I think that flows into... You, you've sat on a number of boards. Were, were you able to create time and space during your professional career? Was, have the boards really been something which have come kind of as you were leading more towards retirement and then yeah. since? Yeah. Uh, I didn't have a lot of time for that during my uh, career, Ollie. Um, uh, most of my directorships have been have been post my career and uh, it's been a wonderful thing to do again because I've got the time to be able to go and do it and I'm not pinching from anybody else, uh, Ollie. Um, what did I do during my career? I think I sat on a beef CRC during my career, but uh, that's about the only outside board, if memory serves me correctly. I think most of my board positions have been post my executive career. What do you think is the importance? And I know from from my point of view, like I've tried to get really involved in various industry initiatives, various boards kind of early, and then actually last year I went through the stage of stepping back from nearly mm. everything I'm doing to try and focus on the career. But, mm. yeah, do you think now times have changed in terms of how people balance kind of the the business commitment and also the community piece, or do you think it... Yeah. yeah, a couple of different things there, Ollie. Community piece as opposed to boards. They mm-hmm. can, uh, <coughs> pardon me, Ollie, uh, uh, looking back, I don't think I'm the right person to be a company director. Uh, I thought, uh, you know, I relished the opportunity. and I've had a, you know, a couple of significant board roles, but um, I'm a bloke who's had a lifetime in the weeds. Ollie, you know, as I say, I knew where every dollar was, I knew what every trade was, I was, you know, I got my hands dirty every day uh, and uh, and I really enjoyed that, whereas in a board, you've got to be in the helicopter at a, at a thousand feet looking down and uh, and directing traffic. It's a, it's a completely different role to the one that I had ever had in my business and uh, whilst I enjoyed my directorships, I don't know that I was necessarily as effective as I might have been because I'd probably had 40 years doing the opposite to what I was uh, about to do on those boards. So it was an interesting uh, interesting experience. Uh, I'd like to think that I've still contributed on the boards that I've been on, Ollie, but uh, um, uh, I'm not sitting on any boards as such today apart from chairing the Xander MacDonald Award, which is a great passion, but I don't regard that as a board as such. But, um, yeah, they're a very different experience running your own business as opposed to sitting on a board uh, that's not your own. Yeah. And in in terms of one board I do want to touch on, and it's the Country Education Foundation Mm. that you were a part of. Was that your father's influence that got you so passionate about the importance of education for younger people? No, no, I, I won't give Dad credit for that. Uh, uh, look, I just, uh, I just enjoy helping young people, Ollie, because I see what a, a, a massive difference you can make to somebody's life. Um, 
uh, friends of ours, Nick and Julia Burton Taylor, started the Country Education Foundation quite a few years ago, and uh, Nick invited me to go and sit on that board uh, after I had left Sanger. And uh, I tend to sit on boards for about five years. That seems to be about my time. And uh, um, I did that at Country Education Foundation. That uh, that foundation, Ollie, uh, takes uh, young people as they leave school and uh, gives them a leg up. It might be a box of tools to go and do an apprenticeship. It might be petrol money to go to university. It might be a scholarship to go to university. But it makes a huge difference to lives of young people in rural and regional Australia. Uh, a wonderful thing that the Burton Tylers have done. I absolutely thoroughly enjoyed my... Just let me give you one, one prime example. There was a, a young fellow who came to see us who the Country Education Foundation supported... Um, who came from Alice Springs, um, single mum, uh, went to university in, in Canberra, first in his family to ever go to university, topped his class, the university said, we want you to stay here and help us in the university, there's a job for you here forever, you're not going anywhere. So, you know, and as he said, if it hadn't have been for the Country Education Foundation... He'd be stacking shelves in Woolworths in Alice Springs, but now, hopefully, not only is he educated, university educated, hopefully his kids will be, but the, the, the knock-on effect, Ollie, is just massive. You know, the one observation I took out of Country Education Foundation was that, yes, the money was important for these young school leavers to get a few bob to be able to do what they needed to be able to do to, to get their career going or get a scholarship. That was all important. But you know what? The fact that somebody outside their family had taken an interest in them and had identified them as somebody that they wanted to help, the, the lift in the morale in these young people uh, to think that, wow, somebody actually wants to help me. You know, this is extraordinary. Yeah. And, and the change in those young people was just extraordinary. I loved it. You know, that, as I say, Ollie, you don't have to do a lot in some cases to make a huge difference to a life. I, I do want to chat about the Xander, of Xander Please. Award, and, and obviously that's how we met. But just um, to set the premise, how, how did you meet Xander McDonald and when was it? Ah, look, I can't tell you the specifics now, Ollie. It was a fair while ago, but um, he was just one of those um, effervescent, enthusiastic, dynamic driven young people who was obviously going places and uh, we had a few things in common but um, you know Xander came from a family based way out in the middle of nowhere at Cloncurry if I can call that the middle of nowhere <laughs> um, sorry if I've offended anybody <laughs> but uh, it's a long way away and uh, uh, he was part of a family who are probably Australia's largest privately owned cattle enterprise and uh, uh, Xander was um, was really driving the business. He was starting to process his own cattle and uh, you know pack his own meat in his own brand and sell that around the world. I didn't ever do business with him, Ollie, as uh, as good of friends as we were, but we didn't ever do business together. Uh, and that was that probably helped keep a friendship, uh, but uh, which I which I, I greatly regarded. He was a very dear friend. Sadly. Uh, we lost him in, a, in, a, in an accident on his farm when he was only only um, only 41. That was in uh, in 2013, so um, nearly 10 years ago. But uh, he was a he was a he was a visionary. He was a champion, uh, and 
a couple of qualities that he had that you don't see every day, Ollie. He was, um, it wasn't just for him or his business what he did. He was a great um, researcher, developer. You know, he, he, he wanted to do different things, but he, he didn't necessarily just want to do it for, he, for himself or for his own business. It was all for the for the betterment of the industry. You know, he was he was one who was absolutely passionate about pain relief in any surgical procedure with animals. And, uh, you know, all his contemporaries, well, well, what are you doing that for? You know, you're wasting money. That's, he said, no, well, he said, I think, I, A, I think it's the right thing to do, and B, I think it's what my customers would expect of me. So he did it and did all the trials and proved to the industry that it was the way to go and uh, look at the industry today, how much pain relief is used today. So he was a visionary, he was before his time and he was just a, a wonderful human being and, uh, and taken far too young. His influence, though, is still absolutely felt. So where, where did the idea to honour him through the Xander MacDonald Award come about? Because obviously I think one thing probably which you might touch on here is that Platinum Primary Producers Group. Absolutely. Um, so um, there were a, there were a few of his ilk, which uh, I wasn't a part of, uh, who were getting together on an irregular basis with uh, Kiwis and Aussies, and uh, a man by the name of Shane McManaway, uh, who at that stage was the head of Allflex, the ag, AirTag people. Um, uh, he was the head of uh, Allflex in Australia uh, Pacific, uh, and he and Xander were particularly good mates. And uh, so when Xander lost his life, it was Shane's initiative to uh, start uh, an award in his honour, uh, which he did. The first award recipient was in 2015, uh, and that was Emma Black. Uh, so, um, and Shane asked me in 2016 if I'd come on, on board and chair it. Shane's a busy man. He had a lot of other things going on in his life, and as passionate as he was about it, um, he uh, he handed the baton over to me, and uh, uh, I've run with it ever since, uh, Ollie. And uh, um, uh, because Xander and uh, and I had a pretty special relationship, it's been uh, just a great honour for me to be able to uh, uh, bang the drum and uh, again try and through the award help young uh, help lift young people up, put a bit of wind under their wings, and. Uh, um, introduce them to people that uh, might be able to help them in their career. So it's just the most wonderful award uh, across both Australia and New Zealand. And uh, yeah, again, Ollie, it's changing lives. There's so much to unpack as part of Richard's story, but one part which really stuck with me that I just can't even imagine is having to work on the docks, scouring lambskins before they were exported. It honestly was a very different time and it wasn't even that long ago that Aussie Ag, they truly did start at the ground level working their way across the businesses and I found that really fascinating. As we talked about in a few different parts, uh, Richard is the chair of the Xander McDonald Award and they've got two very exciting announcements coming over the coming weeks. The first being the New Zealand winner, who will be announced later this week. And next week, we've got our eyes set on orange where the Australian winner will also be crowned. If you want to find out more, jump into our show notes, follow the link and check it out. It's an incredible opportunity. If anyone wants to throw their hand up next year, go and check out the criteria and get around it. Look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane, and I'll join you next week.